Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. And welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different business topic. But rather than making recommendations because everyone's circumstances are different, we talk to subject matter experts about how they would recommend thinking about that decision. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Warren Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia, which is where we're recording today. Brady Ware is sponsoring this podcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite podcast aggregator, and please also consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. Um, today we're going to talk about hiring an investment banker, and, and I think this is an important subject because investment banks, I think, oddly enough, have a lot of mystery around them. In, in many cases, particularly if you're a small business, um, you may only use an investment banker once in your entire life, maybe even hopefully once in your entire life. You, you, you do one exit, you make a boatload of money, and then you get on your yacht or you go to your mountain villa or your, uh, your Italian Sicilian hideaway and never have to do anything again. And, and, and one of the, the parties that kind of makes that possible for that lucrative exit is, is the investment banker. Now, I, I happen to have uh, a lot of respect for investment bankers because early in my career, uh, I, I did the investment banking thing. Um, and let, let me tell you, uh, I'll get on my soapbox a little bit and I have no problem with that. Um, you know, for, for all the, for all the, the, the junk that investment bankers take and, and, and you hear investment bankers brought up in Congress that they don't pay enough taxes and, and whatnot. You know, I, I challenge any of them to walk in the shoes of a successful investment banker for two years and see kind of how they, they do with that. Um, it, it is not a nine to five job. Um, uh, unless your definition of nine to five is nine in the morning to five in the morning, it is not a Monday through Friday job. It is, it is an always on job. And, and, and I can tell you for a fact that, that, that those folks that they're successful at all really earn their fees. And if, if you don't kind of live that lifestyle, you just are not in the business very long. That's, that's just all there is to it. Um, and so I washed out. Uh, and, and I, I took a step back and I went into, to, to business valuation, which is, uh, uh, let's say a much more work life balance friendly, uh, professional, although sometimes my wife will wonder about that. But I wanted to kind of get that on the table because when you hire an investment banker, um, it's, it's a very important decision. If they're any good at all, they ain't cheap. Um, and, and they can often be the difference between an exit that, uh, makes you comfortable for a while and maybe pays for a vacation or some of your kids' education versus retiring or possibly leaving um, or creating uh, legacy wealth. Um, so with that, let's kind of in- introduce our guest here. Uh, I-, I have with us Roger Fuhrer, who is a, a director at Bradyware Capital, which is our firm's captive mergers and acquisitions specialized uh, business unit. 
And they help business owners and entrepreneurs understand, increase, and unlock the value of, of their businesses. Um, business owners often find that managing the complexities of transactions an overwhelming experience. And they can even find it overwhelming when they have help. Uh, I can tell you that for a fact. And you need an advocate that that's going to be out there representing you aggressively in the marketplace and helping you find not just an opportunity, not just, you know, Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, Mrs. Right now, but, but, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Right. And, and that's what Brady Ware does. And they help ease those challenges and allow you to continue running your business successfully throughout that transaction. That, that part's really important because I can tell you having worked on, having worked on a lot of transactions myself, uh, not in the investment banking capacity, but as the advisor, you know, selling your business is so physically and emotionally consuming that it, it can be difficult to actually continue running your business and, and sort of forget. You can easily lose sight of the fact that until that money hits escrow or until that money hits your bank account, you get a wire confirmation that deal is not done. And if you are not paying attention, all of a sudden you may be left with a, a less valuable business than, than, than what you started with. But we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, Roger joined Brady Ware's mergers and acquisition team in 2016. Uh, and as I said, he's a director. He has more than 30 years of experience in banking, i.e. 15 times more than I do, uh, where he led teams focused on middle market companies. Uh, he leverages his banking experience with middle market companies to help family-owned businesses and management teams maximize the value of their investments. Specifically, he guides business owners through the sale of their business or assists them in securing the liquidity needed to grow that business. And, and with that, Roger, thank you so much and uh, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate being a part of the discussion. So, Roger, let's let's start with some some basic vocabulary because I'm not sure everybody knows what an investment banker does. I think I think um, there's a an image out there of what an invest an investment banker is, but I think there's a, a misconception. So, kind of in your own words, if you had to kind of describe your job, you know, what what is it? Well, sure. One of the things that people um, misconstrue about the term is when they hear investment, they think it revolves around stocks and bonds and that type of thing. So that's one thing that we're not. So I would say investment bankers uh, do a multitude of things. Um, some are, have more well-rounded services than others. At Brady Ware Capital, we help companies evaluate their strategic options around how do you liquidate or transition your business and discuss possible selling options for them. Or we also help them uncover perhaps opportunities to acquire other companies or merge with other companies and analyze the returns around that. At Brewer Capital 2, we also help companies uh, raise the appropriate bank debt or subordinated or mezzanine debt for the situation that they're dealing with. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, an investment, yeah. So when we say investment banker, you know, one, I mean, you're not lending money yourself, you're, but you may be an intermediary to the folks who are lending money. And, you know, that, that first job description that you put out there really is more of a wealth or financial advisor when you're dealing with analyzing stocks and bonds. And, and maybe the exception may be if you're the kind of investment bank that is, taking companies public and you're dealing with public securities, but 
Um, that isn't you guys. And for the most part, that's not going to be our listener base. So we can probably set that definition to the side, at least for the moment. Um, so one thing, you know, and, and I have to confess, I don't really know the answer to this question in a very clear way. So I'm, I'm very curious to hear your answer to this. And, and that is, you know, what is the difference, if there is any, between an investment banker and, and a business broker? Because you hear those terms both used a lot. Um, but I also know many investment bankers that bristle a little bit if you call them a business broker and vice versa. So I'm curious, is the difference meaningful? And if so, how would you characterize it? Well, first of all, Mike, I'd say that there's a lot of overlap in the term. So I think when people uh, define a broker, they think about um, a transaction being completed, um, a commercial real estate property, a, a residential property, uh, a broker being someone that executes a trade of a stock or a bond. So uh, I would say that I am a business broker, but I would prefer to be identified as an investment banker more so that also helps bring the transaction to fruition. So I think in in our terms and in the markets that we deal with, I think business brokers generally generally deal with smaller size companies and typically list the business for sale and identify an asking price for that business, much like you would with a, a piece of, of real property. I think the difference between an investment banker, I believe, is in a higher strategic value proposition, if you will, where when we're representing a company for sale, we go about an entire marketing process and identify who we see as the best strategic and financial buyers for that entity so that we're able to drive the highest and best value for that company. I hope that helps you from a differentiation perspective. No, it, it, it does, and, and, and not to suck up to you because I'm not. It's actually the best definition I've actually heard, <laughs> the best distinction I've actually heard between the two. So for the first time, I, I, I think I could actually explain it to somebody else, which is the, the definition of a good, of a good understanding. So, um, what, what is the, what is the investment banker client relationship look like if it's a, if it's a, you know, a, a very, a very good one? I think. When, when clients sign on to, to pr pursue a strategic transaction, we use that generic term deliberately for the moment. You know, I, I sometimes wonder, particularly if they've never been in that kind of transaction environment before, if clients really, frankly, know what it is that they're getting into. So maybe, you know, could you kind of shed some insight and give us some of the inside baseball in terms of what that relationship looks like on a, a, a day to day and a month to month basis? Sure. And I, maybe to define an ideal relationship, I kind of start by saying um, the process to sell a business and to discuss the strategic options leading up to selling a business could be a six to nine to 12 month process. So with that being said, um, you're going to spend a lot of time as the business owner with the investment banker that you choose to work with. So I think it's very important that you have a degree of chemistry with 
with those folks, uh, that everybody likes working with each other and that the investment bankers able to also work effectively with the management team of the company and work with other outside advisors, uh, such as their attorney or accountant, et cetera, uh, that's going to be working through this process. And the reason that it's important, it's not so much the time frame, but it's the intensity during that time period. Um, I might talk with uh, my customer uh, daily, twice a day, many times a day, depending on you know where we're at in the process. So there's a, a tremendous amount of interaction um, that you're dealing with during during the course of the process of selling a business. I think the other thing that I would suggest that that somebody look for in an investment banker, and I, I'm I'm sucking up a little bit and, and touting some of my background, but I think somebody that has had some experience, a multitude of experience in different business environments, because there are uh, technical, legal, accounting, financial, um, uh, emotional, all kinds of issues that come up during the course of the process. And so I think dealing with somebody with a well-rounded background is also very important in the process. You know that, and, and you know I, I, I'll, I'll underscore that because that that's also important in in what what I do. Um, as you know, and if my listeners, if our listeners have have listened to any of these other podcasts, I specialize in technology businesses and professional services firms, i.e., businesses that have mostly intangible uh, assets, and you know the process of of selling, buying a business in those industries is candidly very different from, say, buying or selling an orthopedic practice or uh, even a you know a manufacturing company or a high tech engineering um, situation. Although engineering, I guess, is professional services. But the point is, all these these all these kinds of transactions of businesses have their own little nuances that have to be that have to be figured out. And anticipated, preferably well in advance, and you know there's a lot of value to having seen a lot of stuff because um, every deal will have a surprise or two that's just unavoidable. But you'd like to keep those those surprises down to a minimum to a dull roar. Well, and the ability to draw back on past experience and and be able to connect the situation from one experience to another and say, in this situation, this is how it was dealt with as kind of a, a starting point in understanding the discussion. Yeah. As, as I like to say that the, there needs to be some benefit in my case to having gray hair and two arthritic ankles. And uh, the, 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 what you get in exchange for that is a little bit of experience and been there, done that and got the t-shirt. Um, so one thing that, um, I think a lot of folks don't know if they haven't worked in an investment bank yet is that there's a difference between sell side and buy side transactions with, with of course um, a sell side transaction, meaning that you're working for the seller and a buy side transaction, meaning that you're working for a buyer and, and most investment bankers I know, and I, I truly don't know if this is the case for you. I should, but I don't. Um, but most investment bankers have a preference to work for se- on sell side transactions. So I guess my two part question is: uh, Is that the case for for you guys up at Bradyware Capital? And, and if so, you know why is that? Why is there a preference to work on the sell side? 
Well, it's interesting that you bring this up, Mike. Uh, this morning, I was talking to another investment banker that we have a strategic alliance with, and we were introducing ourselves to another party, and they asked if he does buy-side engagements, and he said, no, I, I flat-out refuse them. <laughs> so, yeah, I've heard um, that. So, the uh, first of all, uh, Brady Ware's capital's preference is most certainly to do sell-side engagements. Uh, we do take on a limited amount of buy-side engagements when the situation seems right for ourselves and the client. But the, the reason for the preference is, and this may seem a little bit strange at first, but with a sell-side engagement, you know you have one willing party to start with. You have someone that has, has engaged you to go find the buyer. They're ready to sell. When you do a buy-side engagement, the buyer says that they want to grow from strategic acquisition or otherwise, but in many cases, it's very difficult to define what it is that they're looking for and trying to identify the right party to be a participant on the other end of the transaction. And if you're able to find the perfect fit and talk to and, and find and get financials and identify the right selling party for that, for that transaction. Well, they work for sale when you call them. So you kind of flip the leverage in terms of the monetary value that, you know, is going to be exchanged. You kind of flip that leverage over to them because you've reached out to them and created a situation that they weren't ready for. So it would be the same thing if I showed up at your doorstep and your house wasn't for sale, but I said that I wanted to buy it because it was the perfect fit for me. And you kind of take a step back and go, well, I'm not, not really for sale, but if you paid me 50% over market value, it might be for sale. Yep, that's right. And so when that happens, right now my buyer, who was a willing participant, says, well, wait a minute, I'm not going to pay that for that company. <laughs> so it's very difficult to find the perfect fit uh, in a, in a buy-side engagement. It's, it's, like, it's like trying to solve, you know, one equation with two unknowns, I guess. And, you know, for the most part, you know, at least larger companies, you know, that they, they won't hire a buy side, yeah, buy side investment bank or representative. And that's why they'll hire instead a vice president of business development, or they'll have a corporate development team if they're large enough. And, and that's kind of their job to go out there and hunt for those businesses to acquire. And, and that's probably the more common model, wouldn't you say? I would definitely agree with that, Mike. Yeah. Um, so uh, how, how do, how do folks like you frankly get paid? You know, in, in my practice, 90% of my fees are, are on a fixed, uh, on a fixed basis. Um, I, I don't think the investment banking world really works that way. So, you know, how to invest, how, how are investment banking fee structures on a sell side engagement typically put together? Well, I wouldn't have answered it this way, except for how you stated it with yours are 90% fixed. Ours are probably 90% variable. So for the most part, we are compensated when success happens. And that's back to your introduction. That's when the wire transfer goes through. So uh, most investment bankers will receive a retainer at the beginning of, of uh, a sale process, and they might 
receive another retainer or two, you know, throughout the course of the engagement at various stages in the process. But most of our, again, most of our fees come from uh, the transaction success actually happening. And those fees would, would range from roughly a few percentage points on up to maybe a seven or eight percent, uh, percent of the sale, depending on the size of the transaction. And the risk level, I would imagine as well, correct? In other words, if you think the deal is going to be easier to do, the fee might be a little bit less. Or does it matter? I'll, Maybe it doesn't. I'll say, I'll, I'll, I'll answer that a couple ways, Mike. One is, um, since our buyer very nature and the, and the kind of the structure of our pricing is built around success, the idea is to identify projects that we would work on that we feel that we're going to achieve success. Uh, and that's, you know, mutually determined between ourselves and our client. Uh, in other words, if our client, if we value the business, I'll just use a number of 5 million, and our customer says that I'm not going to sell for anything less than 10, then we probably don't see a pathway to success with that. At that juncture, we might work with the customer more about how to achieve a valuation of $10 million at that point in time. So if we don't see a pathway to success, I'd say there'd be two things that we would do. One is not become engaged. Or secondly, if the client wants us to continue through a process, we would probably change this, the pricing structure so that it's more fixed versus variable. Got it. Okay. And, and you know, the way you described that just made me realize something. Um, and it goes back to the previous question of buy side versus sell side. If, if your compensation is going to be a, a, a factor of or driven by the size of the deal and you're working on a buy side engagement, you're kind of working against yourself, right? Because you'd, you'd, be, you'd be trying to drive down a price, but in so doing, driving down your fees, that, that would be a pretty hard pretty hard balancing act to sustain in any event. Yeah, we're a little bit, uh, and we like to, our pricing structure, we like to be in, in mutual lockstep with our clients so that we're not in a situation like that yeah. where uh, we're, we're not trying to drive the price down so we drive our fee down, correct? Right. And also back to, your, back to your buy side situation because I described before that you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to identify and achieve success with it. And that's the nature and structure of our compensation system is based on success. You don't want to get into a lot of situations where you don't see a pathway to success. Yeah. That's, that, that's a good way to not be in business very long. Um, Correct. <laughs> so um, take us through a sale process. Let's, let's say somebody has been, you know, that you're, you're now engaged and, and um, you're ready to uh, put a business on the market for sale at some point. I'm guessing there's some preparation that goes into the process, but I don't want to answer that question. I want to let you answer that question. What does that process look like? Sure. I, I Maybe before getting engaged, I'd like to you know, take a step back and you know discuss the, the process of getting engaged. So... Um, I mean, it sounds a little bit like a marriage here, but so 
what are you, what are you trying to accomplish, business owner? What are your objectives? Are you trying to uh, transition your business to your management team? Or are you trying to transition your business to uh, relatives, you know, uh, cousins, daughters, sons, whatever it might be? Or are you trying to exit 100% of the business and sell to a strategic party, a financial party? Um, are you trying to retain some ownership? And partner with somebody to, um, you know, to take you further and help you grow your business in another direction, perhaps geographically or from product diversification, whatever that might be. So I think the, the first part in thinking about a sales process is really identifying and discussing what are you trying to do with this? What's, what's the right solution for you? Because that's going to drive the marketing process that we go through. So is that helpful? No, no, it, it, it is. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought us back to that point because I think it's very, I think it's very important that uh, I'll, I'm, I'll, I'm guessing the, the process where or the number of clients that that you or any good investment banker has, or somebody just sort of calls you up and says, "Hey, I need an investment bank." Great, I'll send you a letter, sign it. Next thing you know, you're engaged. I bet that's pretty close to zero. Right, you've, that would be less than zero. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you've <laughs> you've had months of uh, of conversations. This is something a lot of people don't realize about investment bank is 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 folks like you invest a ton of time, energy, and expertise in that that pre engagement relationship building uh, period where you're trying to understand a the business and and b the goals of the owners and make sure those are those are something that you can realistically that you can realistically accomplish. That's correct. And as part of that process, it's also identifying a value range of that business so that you understand what the potential outcome could be as a result of the marketing process. So back to my example of, of the $5 million valuation where the business owner feels that 10 is their exit number. Then we've got to step back and talk about ways to get that business valuation up. So, um, so I, I digress a little bit from your question on the on the sales process and what happens when you get engaged. But I thought that was a good backdrop. Uh, with that being said, so to directly answer your question through an engagement process, and there's I, we describe it as as a several different steps that we go through throughout that six to nine month process that we discussed before where we literally write marketing material on the business by gathering financial data, um, understanding the products, the markets, the sales process, whatever it might be that are positioning uh, the business as to why this is an outstanding investment consideration for a potential buyer to look at. So we go through, um, you know, entire marketing process and understanding the business. And then as part of that process, we set down and identify who we see as potential buyers for this business. And how we do that is we review companies that might be um, direct competitors of the, of the customer. They might have ancillary businesses uh, associated with, with this particular business. They could be large suppliers to the business. 
or have other strategic interests that could align with purchasing the particular company that we're representing. We also identify what we'll call financial buyers who, uh, broadly speaking, would be identified as private equity groups or perhaps family offices that, that engage in private equity transactions. Private equity um, can be a very powerful option uh, for people, especially who are interested in retaining some ownership and continuing on a go-forward basis. Typically, these financial buyers also have a strategic interest in an industry. So a private equity firm that has a specialty uh, in managing manufacturing companies probably isn't going to be interested in their retailing business, as an example. But it's usually something that's uh, tangential to the business that they're already in. So those are the those are the things that we go through at the start of that process. And then we, we literally do um, hand-to-hand combat outreach to the, to the uh, leadership team of these prospective buyers and send marketing material to them in an attempt to get them interested in, in this company. Yeah. I, I, I like the way that you, I like the way that you mentioned that, that hand-to-hand combat. And and just as an aside, interesting you bring up family offices because I think that's a relatively new trend. When when many of us think about private equity, I'm sorry, financial buyers, we think we go right to private equity. But um, as you know, I'm doing a lot, an increasing amount of work with, with family offices and, and dynastic wealth. And they're starting to become a more a more important player in as a financial buyer of of buying operating businesses, at least I'm seeing that. Are you seeing the same thing? Uh, we are. Um, they too, like others, are looking for uh, profitable ways to deploy the capital that they have to invest, and um, they they see this as uh, you know one of the avenues that they might allocate a portion of their portfolio. So w- w- typically, you know. And I'll just let's do a range here. I don't want to nail you down, but but I still think it's important in terms of managing expectations. When when you uh, and a client agree to work together, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, h- how do you set expectations, or what 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 expectations do you typically set in terms of how long it'll take from? Yeah, we're signing this engagement letter until you're going to sell the business and money wire transfers go through. Sure, I'll 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 start with the end answer and I'll break it down in stages for you, Mike. The end end answer is probably six to eight months uh, from the start of the process for the wire transfer clearing. We say it's about a month doing our market preparation and and marketing material. Um, another month to six weeks in terms of executing the marketing process and identifying potential buyers and outreach and getting indications of interest from those buyers, uh, another six weeks or so in terms of providing additional information, hosting those companies on site for visits, and ultimately picking the right party and negotiating a letter of intent that we all agree on. So that's about, I'll call that, you know, maybe four months total there. And then it could be another three months or so to 
you know, develop documentation, do the due diligence research that the buyer is going to do, and ultimately get to the closing process. So uh, there's a question I want to make sure that I, uh, a conversation I want to make sure I have with you, because I think this is very important for our, our listeners, and I'm sure that you've addressed it. And that is part of the compensation model is that there's a retainer involved. Um, and to be candid, I, I, I actually advise clients that, um, hiring an investment banker that, re- that requires a retainer, I think is a good thing because that's what helps keep the investment banker interested, especially when the deal isn't particularly active as opposed to, and we know there, and business brokers tend to be more like this, so they'll operate without that retainer where, you know, there's a purely a success fee out there and, and you're going to get the very definition of ADHD in that whichever deal happens to be getting transact, I'm sorry, traction today is the one that's going to get your attention. And that means that yours is going to go to the bottom of the pile. Um, c- can you comment on that? Does that make any, make, make any sense to you? Well, I would say um, what went through my mind, Mike, is I've seen uh, investment bankers that charge a monthly retainer. I'm not a big fan of that. And in advising a client, I would advise a client against that because that just keeps the meter running and doesn't necessarily drive one to success. The retainer fees that we have and the way that we structure it is around hitting certain benchmarks so that there is demonstrated progress in the work that we're doing. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to close the transaction, but for example, having a retainer that hits when the letter of intent is signed, that shows that work was done and progress was made. And this keeps us engaged and kind of covers our expenses and time and effort in working through to the closing process. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of retainers that way that are benchmark driven. I'm not a big fan of retainers that are driven by the turn of the calendar. Okay, good, good. So um, have you ever run into a, a scenario where a prospect kind of raises the question of, well, you know, my, my law firm says they know buyers and my CPA firm says they know buyers and maybe I can just let them sell my business and not have to pay the fee. You know, do you ever encounter that? That, And if you do, what, you know, how do you respond to that? Uh, we encounter it frequently. Um, and the way that we address it is a, is a number of ways. First of all, there's many great accountants and attorneys that I've worked with through these processes and, and many of them may have the capabilities to do these, uh, I'll call them one-off transactions from time to time where a buyer reaches out directly to the seller to get a transaction completed. Uh, that could work. I don't, I don't advise that you should approach it that way, but that could work. I find it, um, I don't know, I'll use the term laughable that accountants and attorneys would do outreach to identify potential buyers and try and get them interested and do the work that we do. 
So they certainly have some, you know, some skill sets that help in the process. But the other thing I'd say is that they're rarely staffed to handle those steps to do it. Um, I mean, we'll, we work constantly on a deal. And I, by constantly, we might spend half a day for six months on a particular deal. I, I don't see an accountant or an attorney having the ability to do that based on the other workloads that they have. So I, you know, we, we always hear about the, the realtor sale, the, the FISBO, the for sale by owner. I certainly don't think that it's the recommended approach. Independent of the advisors, here's the other thing that I think is the critical piece of this. So it's, it's a very specialized and a time-sensitive process, which I've just articulated. But the business owner and the management team needs to focus on running the business and maintaining the value of the business. If you devote an inordinate amount of time to the selling process itself and the business suffers, guess what? You just diminish the value that you thought you were saving by not paying the, the investment banker fee. So um, I was the expression, what's the saying? If you have uh, if you act as your own attorney, you have a fool for a client. I think this is pretty similar to that. Um, you know, you use the term before about, you know, trying to do this, you know, cheaply. Well, we certainly believe a thousand percent of the time that the process and the effort and the marketing approach that we do is way, way more offset. Our costs are way, way more offset by the value that we drive in the business. So first of all, don't do it yourself because your business is going to suffer. If, if you're in a situation where you can, just, you can spend six to nine months working on the selling process, I, I, you know, I, ch- I challenge that that just doesn't happen in business very often that you can establish a new role for yourself and not do your current job. So don't, don't do that is my, is my huge advice with that. So the, the bullet point here is do not try this at home. Um, do not and, no. And, and, and you know, I, I, I agree with that. I, and I've seen it happen even with an investment banker involved. And I, I think frankly, one of the, the values that, that you guys bring to the table is your, is, you know, understanding how to manage your client's time to make sure they are still managing their business because, you know, there's the dynamic at work that if your eyes off the ball on the business, you know, that's one thing over time, you can probably recover it. But the other part that I I think is extremely hard to recover from is psychological is that once your mind is kind of one foot out the door and you're thinking more about that condominium in Costa Rica than, than you are your, your business on a day to day basis. I think it's very hard for you to snap yourself out of that and get back into full on business non exit mode. I would completely concur with that. And, you know, I think one of the things that we do in the process is, is the coaching aspect of it about making sure that the business is still performing. Now, obviously, situations occur where that doesn't happen, but the idea is to make sure that people are maintained or uh, and maintain their focus on where they should be to maintain the value of the business 
during this, you know, this six to eight month cycle. So we are talking to uh, Roger Fuhrer of uh, Bradyware Capital, and we're talking about uh, uh, whether you should hire an investment bank. Uh, I've just got a couple more questions, and I want to uh, let you go because I know you've got deals that you're working on uh, right now. Um, but one question I want to make sure that we do cover is, you know, investment banks such as Bradyware Capital are not just about buying and selling businesses, are they? There are other kind of ancillary, I don't want to say ancillary because that sounds like they're not important, but there are other important services that that you offer um, to clients as well, as do other many investment banks. Could you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, I, I think a couple things that we do uh, well also, and I think having Bradyware Capital being a part of Bradyware, the accounting practice, uh, gives us the unique capabilities of being able to work with um, what we would call transaction specialists that are able to be participants in a due diligence process and and identifying you know issues that might arise in the in the financials of a of a target company as an example or preparing the seller for issues that might come up with their target company so. I would broadly categorize that as transaction services type of work. Um, additionally, uh, we also participate in uh, what I would call corporate finance, which would be helping companies analyze potential cash flow and return on equity metrics for uh, an investment that they're making, an acquisition that they're making. Uh, those types of things to make sure that they're on the right path from a financial perspective. And finally, I believe I mentioned before, we do assist in capital raises. Most traditionally, uh, we have worked in the area of, of bank debt and other mezzanine debt that would assist the company, you know, with their, with their capital structure. Now, now you mentioned debt sort of noticeable noticeably absent in that conversation than is equity. Does that mean that you're not as not as aggressively pursuing transactions where you might help somebody raise equity capital? We do not do that as a routine, no, Mike. Um, it's almost one of those situations that I would parallel with the buy side discussion in that trying to find the right fit of equity participants with a particular equity need is maybe needle in a haystack type of type of approach. Um, I would say more typically from an equity raise perspective would be around the potential uh, transition of some of the ownership, maybe minority ownership perspective to provide liquidity to uh, the primary owner, or perhaps to engage in some uh, expansion activity or acquisition activity. There is a fair amount of private equity groups that do specialize in taking a minority ownership position. Uh, so when those, uh, you know, that scenario arises, that might be something that we would be a part of a process of in, in an equity capital raise. But rarely do we do one-off type if you will, for smaller dollar amounts to bring equity into a business. So if, if Wiley Coyote is coming to you and he's, he's trying to raise venture capital for his roadrunner catching machine, that's not a good fit. 
I don't know. Wiley Coyote had some great acne machines that I remember as a kid. <laughs> we might invest in that. Oh, there you go. Uh, but yes, that that's not uh, that is not uh, one of our uh, strong suits. All right. So, uh, Roger, this, this has been great. There's, there's other questions we we could ask, but I, I know we got to let you get back to it. If, if somebody wants to contact you and learn more about uh, about investment banking and how investment banks can help a company from a strategic perspective and maybe a little bit more about Bradyware Capital. How, uh, how can they best uh, find you? Well, I'll tell you that, but before I do, I think there's one other point that I think that we should talk about with the listeners. Um, you know, a lot of times we talked about a party not doing it, you know, doing it at home yourself type of thing and doing it for sale by owner. When people get outreach from a from a buyer and who calls them directly and thinks that they you know they should engage in a in an acquisition discussion investment bankers are very useful in that process as well uh in that the first the first thing that we do is help with the identification of what the value of that business should be and also kind of go back to the starting point uh that we had before is what are you trying to accomplish uh, business owner around your goals and objectives with transition. So I just thought that was uh, worthwhile to bring up too before uh, uh, before exiting. Uh, with that said, and answer your question on how to get a hold of me, um, my email address is rfuer f u r r e r at bradyware dot com, or anyone may reach me on my cell at area code nine three seven two three eight nine four zero one okay roger thanks very much for that um i think there's a there's a lot of good content for somebody who's thinking about whether or not they need to retain an investment bank uh chances are if you're thinking about it you probably do and 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 roger's a great place to start that's going to wrap it up for today's program i'd like to thank roger fuhrer so much for joining us and sharing his expertise with us we explore a new topic each week, so please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Bradyware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. <laughs>